Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. This on? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. Now, everybody, it's a call-in show, so if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, please go to askbillnye.com and type on in. I want to hear what's on your mind. I want to hear what you have to say, your thoughts that you're thinking. And today, once again, of course, I am joined by science writer, editor, and actually dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. Uh, Great to be here. You look extra revved up today. It's like your protons and neutrons are all jazzed up and ready to fly. Well, today, Corey, we're talking about fusion, the power of the sun. As uh, we say, right now we have a fusion reactor, very powerful, at a safe distance, Uh, 150 million kilometers, 93 million miles, the sun. But how cool would it be, actually, how hot would it be (laughs) to have fusion here on the Earth's surface? And so today we are joined by Michael Binderbauer, the chief executive officer of TAE Technologies. I believe that's Tri-Alpha Energy Technologies uh, out there in California. And he is ready to create a new kind of energy using nuclear fusion. Michael, greetings. Welcome to the show. You have a new kind of fusion reactor. What we're doing, particularly at TAE, is a different kind of scenario of what the mainstream's working on, but it's still fusion. It's hot fusion. It's magnetically confined fusion. Magnetically confined fusion. So we take, what, some protons and smash them together? What happens? Yeah, so in the sun, right, you have massive amounts of gravity that hold the material together and gets it to the conditions where density and temperature are extreme and where fusion occurs. What are those those, uh, pressures and temperatures? Well, you're looking at, uh, for instance, give you a flavor on, on temperature, right? So you're talking 15 million degrees in the core of the sun. 50 million? 15. 15 15. Oh, it's only. Oh, it's only 15, 15 million. million. Yeah, that's, that's not so yeah. bad. Now, um, terrestrially, um, it's a little bit different. Terrestrially, we'll actually have to get even higher temperatures. Why is that? Uh, because we're working at lower densities. So the sun basically takes all this gravity and forces the stuff together. And so you get a very high packing ratio of the particles. Terrestrially, we can't quite do that. So we use magnetic bottles, for instance, right? So we, we take this hot... Soapy we bat- use magnetic bottles that we have. Uh, we, we go to we Bottle work, Co. Well, where, where, where do I get a magnetic <laughs> bottle? Fusion works on that, right? So we, we develop magnet systems um, that can create the kind of force that you need to hold this charged soup of particles together. You mean because no physical bottle could actually hold it, it would melt? Yeah, it would. Well, actually, be, 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 this is the, the sort of weird thing, right? It's, it's not that the container melts. It's that the plasma will cool off and won't fuse anymore. So you got to keep temperatures so you up. So you, you got to insulate you can't touch it. it. No, you can't touch it. you got to keep it away from the walls. you got to keep it insulated, if you will, thermally. Um, and that we do with magnetic fields. We sort of suspend it. Think of it, I always like people, the kitchen analogy. You, you take a, you know, a ball of Uzi Jello and you're suspending it with a bunch of rubber bands in the middle of the room. And you want to not keep it from oozing out between the rubber bands. And so this thing is going to be at 50 million degrees? 
it's not quite yet. It's right now around 35 million degrees. 35 million. Yeah, it's, it's, we're pushing there. And it's held in a vessel that's made of materials that I am familiar with, stainless steel or something like that? Yep, stainless, Inconel, uh, metals. Inconel is a fancy alloy of stainless. And uh, so that stuff would melt at 35 million, but by containing it in a magnetic field, it somehow stays there. Yeah, so uh, the peculiarity is, is, yes, it, it would melt if you would heat steel to that temperature. But what we're, what we're heating up to that temperature is a handful of particles. How many is a handful? Well, a handful is something like 10 to the 15, 10 to the 14 per cubic centimeter. So, so not you, even a mole. No. And not even a chemist's mole of material. No, it's a tiny, it's, it's micrograms of stuff. So right? just to so be clear, a handful is about like a quadrillion. <laughs> no, but so you, it, you got it, a lot of hands. Put it, put, it in, put it in perspective <laughs> yes. to like the air in the studio, right? So here were densities that are like six, seven orders of magnitude denser than the material we have inside. So think we're making almost energy out of nothing. It's just like basically a vacuum chamber with a handful of particles we put in uh, and those we heat up to these enormous temperatures. Okay, now the handful of particles, when I was young, the handful of particles was going to be hydrogen or uh, helium, right? Right. But this is boron. Is that right? Yeah. And, and, and the, the, um, the reason for boron is actually one that when you look at the end application, so terrestrially back to what we can do here, right? So the sun basically takes protons since they're a fairly complicated cycle, ultimately makes helium and eventually this, burns up higher, higher this energy This is the materials. CNO cycle? This is, there's, yeah, there's different cycles. Carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, discovered by Hans Bethe, Nobel Prize. That's that's right. Hans certainly deserved that. That was an incredibly complicated um, stepping that occurs in the sun. Okay, so the the sun, protons are basically hydrogen atoms, or they're hydrogen nuclei. Yeah. So hydrogen nuclei are bashing into each other in the sun, and that's making energy, but you're doing something different. But let me just be clear. Let me ask, let me straighten me out. So the hydrogen nuclei are the aka protons, Mm -hmm. would be repelling themselves. That's right. But the sun is so massive. How massive is it? It's so massive that it crushes the protons together with such smush that they fuse and release heat. Yeah, so what really ultimately causes that is there's kinetic energy in these particles, right? So they're zipping around in there. That's they where smash the, into each other. That's, yeah, that's where the 15 million degrees comes from, right? You need that so that you create very violent collisions. Mm. And, and what, what happens then is that they get close enough during the energetics of that, that's they're slowing down closer and closer, and they get to a point where the nuclear force outpowers the electrostatic repulsion. Mm. And, and then, then you actually, then you get um, this effect of fusing. So they become bumper cars that stick together. Yep. All right. Now, if this works, we're fusing the hydrogen with the boron, making three alpha particles, ma- mm-hmm. going from atomic number five to atomic number six, taking the number six and making it into three twos. Is that right? That's pretty much it. Okay. And then it's freaking hot. Mm-hmm. It's just hotly hot, super hot. How do I get the hotness and make it into electricity? So, yeah, so now um, in order for that to actually happen, so let's talk how hot this is, okay? So hydrogen boron will like to um, to fuse at about a billion degrees. Okay, you've, so. you, you said you've gotten to 35 million, but so now you need to get up to a billion? Yes, that's correct. Okay. That's a factor so, of 30. We gotta it's a factor of 30, so, so let's... We'll get, we'll get there, but, but let's walk through what, what you want yeah, to have happen and then we'll figure out how then, to get there. Then we'll talk how, how we get there and what to, what to think of a billion degrees, okay? But, um, but basically, once you get to a billion degrees... Um, and these things start to react and, and the uh, helium is produced, the helium will basically keep heating, the mat- continue to heat the material. And ultimately what happens is you get very hot electrons. And these hot electrons, the light guys, they buzz around more rapidly than everybody else and they start to radiate, just like in an antenna. The electrons sipping around, they emit radiation. In the case here, because of the temperatures that we're operating, you get soft x-rays, things that you would find in your dental x-ray. I, I, just, got, I just got one of those yesterday. Chipped a tooth. It was not pleasant. It didn't hurt you, though. It did not hurt. That's right. So here come x-rays. Mm-hmm. What do I do? I set up an antenna and catch them? What do I do? Uh, no. So what you have now is in the first instant, you will just have a metallic shell somewhere, right? And in a sort of brute force way, these x-rays are going to plow into that. They will be stopped by about a quarter inch of steel or so. Mm-hmm. And then this energy from the x-rays deposited in that layer, it'll turn the steel hot. And now you're on coolant through there, right? And so then the rest so of I it is just like a turbine. So I wrap the steel with uh, some fabulous tube with... Correct. It's a heat exchanger. Yeah, but what is the temperature that we're exchanging? 
Oh, so that's a question of design, right? So y- you don't want this to get too hot. Like I said earlier, metals, um, even refractories, will melt at a few thousand degrees, right? So refractories wanna... are ceramic things like glass. Yeah, re- we call refractory metals like tungsten or molybdenum. Mm. You know, the, there's a few that can manage 2,000 degrees Titanium, plus. yeah. So we, we're operating at a lower temperature uh, for that surface, so about 700 degrees C. Oh, really? Like oh, okay. So then you have liquid sodium or something running. And then, yeah, then there's different coolants you could use. It's like a nuclear reactor, Corey. So, Bill, you have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. But you know who else has a lot of questions? Well, yeah, I bet I'm going to find out. Uh, America. No, the world. The world has the world. questions, Bill. And so uh, one but, of them but is on the line? But specifically, <laughs> one representative of the world, a fellow named Todd, uh, has a question for us. Uh, about nuclear fusion. So, so, Todd, thank you for calling. Where are you calling from, and uh, what's your question? Oh, hi, Mr. Nye. I'm calling from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Um, you, you talked a lot about renewable energy. As far as I know, though, no renewable energy can serve as a base load of electricity like coal, natural gas, or fission. Fusion can. So is fusion possible, and can we ever make it work? Well, that's what we're here to discuss. So everybody, the idea is uh, you don't make electricity with solar panels if the sun's not, not shining. You don't make electricity with wind if the wind's not blowing. So this thing that Todd's referring to, the base load, is the, elect- is the load of electricity the power company has to supply all the time, no matter what's going, day or night, wind or no wind. And so will fusion work all the time? Michael, or does it work in pulses? Like, does it get hot for a few minutes and then you got to shut it down? Right, and, can, start and, over? and can you make enough to fill that base load? Because I mean, coal and right. and, and fission and ga- and natural gas—they're doing a lot of work right now. That's a those are big shoes to fill. Oh, absolutely no. So they absolutely it is the idea is base load, right? Or as they call it, today, dispatchable power. That is, you can have it whenever you want it. So if you want it twenty four seven, it runs twenty four seven, right? And fusion has the promise inherent to to deliver that carbon free. Um, and in the sense, if you think about it, we didn't talk about the, the abundance of boron and hydrogen, but you have about a hundred thousand years of fuel supply terrestrially. If it worked, yeah, so, all the yeah. twenty mule team borax just go out there a hundred thousand years. That would get us through. It, it will. It will. It will probably as a we, it will outlast any human civilization. Yeah. So now, my, my daughter is so using in a, in a way lot it's of that renewable. borax for slime, though. <laughs> slime may be interrupting the borax well, supply. I'll tell you, we use probably less boron in, in in the reactor for a year on a typical scale than she probably does messing around with it. Yeah. So yeah. that's the extraordinary thing is the tiny amount of boron you need. So now. Uh, everybody's talking about Chernobyl, where this reactor design from maybe the 1950s or early 60s, uh, the engineers were just not quite paying attention, blah, blah, blah. They had a fire and disaster, and that's what, uh, one of the reasons people are concerned about nuclear fission power. Uh, you have something, what's the freaking number? A um, hundred million degrees? Yeah. Hundred million to a billion, depending on Bill, a the billion yeah. degrees Celsius, or it doesn't matter Fahrenheit or Celsius. You get up in those numbers. What's going to go wrong? Is there going to be an explosion? Is there going to be a fire that we can't even imagine? Uh, take it, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> How are we going to prevent that? So that's it's actually amazingly um, benign. So when you when you look at it, it, it it's nature's I, I call it ultimate safety valve fusion that is because what happens here is, is we talked earlier about how few particles are in there right so it, it, this gets back to let's start with temperature so temperature in the physics sense is sort of a random energy in a gas okay so it's not the same as when you think of a stovetop hot and you you know what happens you put your hand on it and you, you fry up right that's only at a few hundred degrees or less when the the steel is hot like that but that has very high density and stores a lot of energy. These materials that we fuse are ethereal. It's just a handful of particles. So if I were to stick my hand into our current 35 million degree plasma, I wouldn't fry it to a crisp. What will happen is the plasma instantaneously will cool down. So the notion really is you don't protect the environment from the plasma, you protect the plasma from the environment. The big problem with fusion has been that these processes that lead to losses of energy out of that bubble are very fast and very efficient, unfortunately. And so it cools off always much faster than we can get energy out of it. Okay, hold so, on. So th- this comes back to Todd's question. Now, now, now Todd, are you, are you an optimist? Are you worried? Uh, what, what's, what's the motivation behind this question? Um, my motivation is because I've heard about it, and it's such a, great, such a great thing, but nobody ever, we never invest any money in it for some reason. Um. And I've been watching this stuff for, I think, 
20, 20 years or sure, more. Sure, yeah, and it's always 30 well, years from now. I just, yeah. <laughs> yes, and I never hear about it, and our government doesn't seem to want to invest in it. Well, actually— but I think we need to. There's always been a background investment. Is that right, Michael? The, the, people have always been kind oh, of messing around. Yeah, <laughs> some people call it messing around. No, I think it was serious effort. I mean, honestly, it's obviously a very complicated problem for what I just described. And, you know, we, we call this entropy production, basically. It says this stuff doesn't want to stay together where you want it. Isolate it from the rest of the world. Stay super hot and happy. That doesn't happen normally, right? Things want to equilibrate in every sense. Second law of thermodynamics. So, Everything spreads out and there stops. You go. It's, it's so sad. It's so sad. That is exactly what we're fighting, right? And so um, now we've made enormous progress, though, as a field. You know, over the last 50 years, we went from, you know, what, what worked well in, in, in a violent explosion like the hydrogen bomb to trying to harness its civilian. Obviously, now you're going long time, lower amounts of energy coming out continuously in a controlled way. That's the hard part. And it's again, it gets back to how do I keep the plasma hot and isolated from its surroundings? And, you know, I would say today we're at the cusp of doing that for various reasons. Uh, one is obviously we have a lot more technical and scientific understanding of all the processes that lead to loss and how to prevent those. We have technologies that are much more advanced than they used to be. For instance, magnetic field technologies, these fuel injectors I was talking about, or beams, um, feedback loops, uh, the electronic speed with which we can regulate stuff, um, machine learning, AI, all these kinds of contributory technologies have evolved massively, and particularly in the last five to 10 years. So I think there's so, many of us thinking that it's going to be around the corner for those very reasons alone. So Todd. Uh, yes, sir. Do you want to invest? Can he invest in TAE? Try Alpha Energy? <laughs> yeah, can you do a GoFundMe? <laughs> well, uh, we have, it's a, it's a, be a very expensive GoFundMe, but yes. So we, how we did you get this thing started? Is this government funded? No. So we are the, the largest private uh, research and hopefully soon a producer of, of fusion power um, on the planet. Uh, we started completely private. We have always been private. We have never raised a nickel from the government. So who paid for it? You'd have to kill us. <laughs> no. Was it Todd? It's, Todd, would you, did you do this? This is your little secret I, thing with you? <laughs> no. I'm waiting for it just like everybody else. I heard a scientist who was working on it say that and this is why I'm hopeful. He said, you give us money, we'll give you fusion. It's a question of funding and time. I, I think you said it but very well, Todd. To no, you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, the reason, I mean, partially we, don't, we didn't have it in the past because certain technologies needed to be support technologies weren't quite there. But I think in the last 10 years, we could certainly pull it off. And I think it's a question of will, which ultimately means funds, right? I mean, it, these things are very, I call it, it was a very expensive hobby. So this machine question, like this, so this is question hundreds of, of millions of This dollars. question of when it will happen uh, kind of depends on, well, how much money have you got? Is that, is that true? I think today, at, at this stage, the world knows enough about how to do it and what it needs to do it that uh, I think it's a question of, of, of just uh, focus and, 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 and capital. Todd, this is a great question. You got us yes. started, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, take care in Virginia Beach. Pretty soon we're going to bring you some borax there to uh, southern Virginia, and you guys will just be – you'll be desalinating seawater. Like you'll be taking carbon out of the atmosphere. It's going to be blenders for everybody. There you go. Stick around for more science rules after this. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Science Rules is back. 
carbon. We have not been talking about carbon and carbon dioxide, but that's a big part of the motivation for fusion, isn't it? It certainly is, yeah. I mean, it, I don't think it was when they started, but today it's becoming increasingly clear, right, that, you know, whether you believe in climate change on the global scale or just worry about human impact, as a, you know, we certainly are making a mess of the place. And so the idea to get rid of some of the carbon production, at least on the on making energy, and then when you think the growth of energy, right, and it becomes even worse. I think mm-hmm. it's it behooves us all to try to do something. So it yeah, it's motivated. It's 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 motivated us considerably. So okay, we have another caller. We do indeed. Uh, we have Robin on the line, uh, and Robin, I think, is going to take this conversation to the next level. To the next level. Yes, sir, the next level. We're, we're very interested in getting to further levels. <laughs> Robin, <laughs> uh, where are you calling from and what's your question? Uh, I'm calling from London in the UK. Um, my question is, what needs to happen in order for renewable energy sources to overtake fossil fuels as the mainstream energy supply worldwide? Well, put me and Corey in charge. That would That's what I think key. <laughs> No, so what we want to do is, ha- I mean, I, this, Robin, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, how do we go from fossil fuels to sustainable energy? And uh, just, you know, to refer to one of my uh, recent books, there's 20 in a carton, <clears throat> called Everything All at Once. The idea is there is probably not a single thing that's going to overtake uh, conventional fossil fuels. But my, and Michael, you'll talk about this in a moment, my understanding is we'll get, if we can get one of these things working, then we could reproduce the design and, and, uh, and refine it and then make it uh, commonplace. But in the meantime, Robin, what we, I believe we need to do is make it so that everybody accepts the idea that we can't be pumping carbon into the atmosphere anymore, and that will enable everybody, uh, all governments and private uh, investors and uh, stockholders like you to invest in all of these different technologies. And here's hoping fusion emerges as the, as the greatest leader. Michael, tell Robin, Corey, and me, how long do you think it'll be before boron tri-alpha fusion is happening? Yeah, so good questions, right? So number one, on the on that quick um, last note there. So I think we are about a decade away from commercializing. So a third of the conventional fusions here any minute. I think within the next, within the 20s, you're going to see at least one of us, perhaps multiple of us succeed. Who's yeah. us? Us meaning within the field. So there's, there's a couple of private companies, obviously, that are working on this next to TAE. And then there is, I think, on the government side, um, a couple of projects that probably will get closer, although they they the, by the end of the decade, we know that from their game plans, they're not going to be quite at that stage, but you know they're going to get there as well, I believe. So fusion, in terms of commercializable technology, will be here. Let's let's postulate it's 2030. Okay, and you can start to to your point, start deploying plants. Okay, 2030. Mm-hmm. I am open-minded but skeptical. But okay. if you said 2040, <laughs> I'd be there. So, Robin, do you see, or do you agree, or is this your question? That let's say the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change from the United Nations has done an assessment and they're going a little over 10 years, 12 years, 15 years is the tipping point where the world gets warm up to two degrees Celsius, warmer than it is now. We we just don't have the infrastructure to move our agriculture, change our seaports and everything uh, to uh, displaced populations are going to be a problem. So, Robin... uh, do you agree or do you have an opinion or have you thought deeply about what we're going to do between now and all the power of fusion? Robin. Yes. Um, um, basically, I've sort of been looking at my own personal carbon footprint uh, recently. And and I was, I've been surprised um, at a few things. Um, I think I'm probably pretty typical in terms of my home is actually Canada rather than London, but I'm a, I'm a typical first world consumer and my carbon footprint from day to day living, heating my home, driving my car, cooking my food is about 10 tons. Um, per and day? 10 tons a day? World number. Robin, 10 a tons year. a day? Uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> 10 tons, 10 tons a year. A year. Mm. 
The snag is that on top of that, I, I do fly quite a lot because basically all my family is in Europe and, and I'm in Canada. My parents are over 80. Uh, my brothers are all in Europe. I want to see them. And so I, I generate another six tons um, of carbon dioxide just by flying uh, to see my family. And just about every flight I've ever taken is discretionary. Very few are utterly essential. Mm. So I'm faced with a, a, a two-part carbon footprint, and, and what do I do about it? And really, up until very recently, I felt really quite helpless. Um, I felt actually a little bit guilty about that kind of size of, of carbon footprint. But most of all, I felt impotent to do anything about it. If you told me to stop flying and stop taking air travel, I'd say, no, I'm sorry, but my family is important to me. Right. Um, the surprise I, I've had recently um, is just how easy it would be for me to actually achieve a zero carbon footprint by investing um, in carbon capture. There are, there are plenty of companies worldwide offering very, very reasonable um, projects, um, not, just to carb, not just to capture carbon, but, I mean, there are, it's also employment and development and a whole bunch of other positives. Yeah, so, um, so but, Robin, along this line, the, the, all these carbon capture technologies, and I'm, I'm just delighted that you're considering investing, uh, require electricity. And so where would you get electricity? You'd get it from the fusion power plant, which makes heat, which will make a steam, which will run a turbine and makes electricity, and then we're all cooking. And so, uh, Robin, of course, it is none of ours, but what is your business? Oh, um, I um, recently retired from 22 years as a geophysicist working for the oil industry. Ah. Get that <laughs> so, <laughs> well, good for you for being uh, concerned about carbon. So yeah. a shortcut. So you know the deal. Uh, jet fuel is kerosene, roughly, yeah? yeah. Right. So um, a shortcut would be to somehow have uh, algae make jet fuel. Uh, make uh, kerosene instead of swamp gas, a bigger molecule, uh, and then kept in collected kerosene, the swamp gas kerosene, burn it in airplanes, and then use Michael's, uh, Dr. Binderbauer's limitless electricity to take carbon back out of the atmosphere. Blah! <laughs> but I'm just delighted, uh, Robin, that you're uh, interested in pursuing this as an investor. It's really something. So you're an expert yeah. on petroleum, and you know how it's how it's been great, but now we have a problem. Uh, just thank you so much for your call, Robin, and my best to your family overseas. Thank you. So following up on Robin's question, there are renewable energy sources, solar and wind, that are essentially zero carbon. Uh, there are ideas about how you pull carbon out of the air either directly or at, the, at a fossil fuel power plant. There are a lot of different ways that people are looking at how to reduce carbon emissions. Where does fusion fit in with that picture? Is it, is it going to take over everything else ultimately, do you think? Is it going to be a complementary thing? How, how, do, how do you see this future coming Yeah, together? I think that's a good question. So I, you know, I said, let's, let's postulate the 2030s as a start. Okay, that doesn't mean we have plants yet. Now we got to build them. So first of all, you, you, you're going to have to develop a worldwide supply chain, right? Look at the problem. Today, um, we're consuming about, what, five terawatts of power, roughly. We're going to go to about nine terawatts or so by the late 2040s, right? Mm -hmm. It's roughly the projection no matter who you look at. So it's almost doubling. And that comes, um, when you look at it, it comes from about a 20 to 30% population increase. And then the rest comes from those in the underdeveloped part of the world sort of starting to pull equal. Right? Moving up. Yeah. Moving up. So you have, you have two kind of serious problems. One is infrastructure to deploy all the power, and one is to generate it, right? So on both sides, we're going to have to make strides. So back to fusion now. So if you look at this, you say, okay, well, if I wanted to meet all this with fusion, the amount of um, supply chain I would have to create isn't going to happen quickly. What do you mean by supply chain? Running power lines? Well, no, but it's just to create all the parts to build one of these mm. things. And now you want to build thousands of them mm. worldwide, right? It's going to take a while for the world to ramp up on that. If you look at energy generation, new technologies coming into the energy markets in the past century, it always has a ramp up time. 
So let's say, you know, within 20 years or so, we can get industrialized for the fusion deployment enough so that we can really start kind of meet, meeting average demand. So there's a, there's a transition period. And, uh, and I think even beyond that, the, so first of all, during the transition period, you're going to need other power sources. You'll start to see the first, let's say the first fusion plant comes online in the second half of the 30s, 35, 30 plus, 35 plus, And then you'll have multiple more coming the next year, and then it starts to increase, right? At the same time, of course, we still need power and more power, as we just said. So you're going to have to have other technologies. So I think it's not a question of one displacing everything. It's a question of what is the right optimal mix. And if you want to minimize the carbon, you're going to have to work on things that are clean. And in fact, if you look at that today, we have fission. Mm -hmm. People pretty much don't like, but I mean, it can be Well, it's got problems. It turns to be really expensive, which let me ask you this about fusion. One of the problems with fission has been well of course nobody has a nobody has a politically acceptable place to put the waste whether or not it's technically feasible is not clear then the other thing is uh radiation makes the the nuclear reactor brittle so-called mm-hmm. n- neutron mm-hmm. embrittlement is, sure. is a problem sure does radiation come out of a fusion reactor so fusion also, I mean, it, our our kind, PB11 fusion or hydrogen boron fusion, will will basically be really benign. There's no radioactivity to speak of. Wow. Know? The radioactivity you'll get is like nuclear isotope production for a PET scanner or something. I mean, it's mm. virtually nothing. Wow. Well, let's take let's take another call, Corey. Uh, we have Anne on the line, and Anne, bring it on. Where are you calling from, Anne? <laughs> Where are you calling from? Uh, I'm calling from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. There you go. So up in Canada, for those who might not be familiar with world geography. Yeah. Oh, everybody knows about <laughs> Canada. It's glorious and free. And a lot it of, is indeed. And a lot of fresh water. I love your fresh water. So, uh, yes, you're in my Sis- province, yeah. You're yeah. in Saskatchewan, uh, the breadbasket of North America. And you have a question. It is indeed. It also happens to be home of the world's largest and richest uranium deposits. So I strongly believe that nuclear energy is a viable replacement for fossil fuels and really can provide that stable, low-carbon baseload power required for our modern economy. So my question for you today is, um, why are you opposed to nuclear energy? And uh, and in fact, are you? Uh, I get the sense from previous discussions and shows that you aren't in favor of it. So uh, that's well, my question to you today. Well, a problem with nuclear, there's been two problems. Uh, uh, it takes 15 years to get a license for a nuclear power plant. And it has been very expensive when it's all done. The, the problem has been, of course, the fuel uh, itself, nobody has a, a great place to put it yet. It's still sitting in in North America, it's still sitting in pools at each nuclear power plant. I've been to Yucca Mountain, Nevada, uh, where, which is a proposed depository for nuclear waste. And I, I am open-minded, of course, but it leaks. It's made of uh, what geologists call tough, T-U-F-F, this rock that's a little bit porous. And so if you're trying to sequester something for, I don't know, pick a number. 10,000 years. 10,000, or let's say 1,000 years. That's just... That's a Roman Empire. That's a, that's a, that's quite a, a claim. And then um, the other problem that nuclear industry has had, they've had three sort of big accidents. And three Mile Island, nothing happened, but it almost did. The evacuation plans were just weird, didn't work. And then Chernobyl, well, they shouldn't have been doing that, but they did. And then Fukushima was built just a, kind of a bad luck place. And uh, why did they do that? And so the pe- the public perception of nuclear power makes getting a license just really complicated. So I am all for yeah, somebody you- coming up a- with a way to get everybody to accept this thing. Go ahead. Go ahead, please, Anne. Yeah, and you hit it exactly on the nail. It is a public perception issue, and that's why I think uh, discussions like this are so important. And so you talk about waste and accidents and things like that, but we have to remember that no power source is without those complications, right? Uh, We have coal, we have ash, we have the leftover waste oil from wind turbines, right? We have the solar panels that are made from... um, rare earth minerals that, you know, of course, don't go anywhere after the fact. So um, it is a public perception issue. And I think we're jading the public if we 
claim that all of these renewable energy sources are waste-free and completely um, benign for the environment. So what's your business, Anne? Uh, I I actually work in the uranium mining industry. I had a sense. I'm also the chair of, yeah, I know, right? Um, I'm also the chair of Women in Mining and Women in Nuclear Saskatchewan here. So, um, you know, we do our research to be able to defend our industry. And, of course, we know that there's negatives um, associated with it, just like anything else. But um, the position that we're in right now, uh, we don't have a lot of viable options for that base load power in the volumes that we need right now. We see a lot of electrification um, moves right now, more electric vehicles, more, you know, remote automation. And, uh, you know, the wind doesn't blow all the time. You know, you've heard that before. We need that base load power, and nuclear can do it. And, yes, there is that time delay, but if we don't start now, we're just pushing it out further. So what are you going to do, Anne? What are you going to do to change people's mind? And, and can your fission compete with Michael's fusion? <laughs> uh, there's new technologies out there, and I am open to any and all of them. And I realize that moves uh, you know, away from uranium in a lot of aspects, but... Um, we are constantly evolving, and I am open to innovation. And you know, the hydrogen boron that uh, sounds appealing—the hundred or the one billion degrees—is mind-boggling. But uh, well, yeah, so stick what am I doing? I'm. But you could stick your hand <laughs> in it, and then it would stop. Yeah. All right. Well, look, yeah. Anne, uh, you're asking great questions. Fusion, fission, the uh, nuclear power is uh, potentially um, uh, carbon-free. But what is, and what is your plan for nuclear waste from a conventional fission power plant? Uh, so I think there's a misconception of actually how much waste is out there, first of all. Um, it, it's not the huge volumes that people are thinking of. Um, so we don't have that perfect solution yet, just like dams to hold back um, any other tailings or anything like that aren't perfect. Um, but I think as we grow and evolve, we will see those technologies, we will see those innovations uh, if we make that move. So in terms of the nuclear waste, yes, we have what we deem to be temporary storage in the pools and things like that. The deep geological repositories um, are a great idea um, to store them right now, and the innovation that could possibly repurpose or reuse that fuel in the future is always out there. Uh, yeah, the uh, reprocessing. And thank you very yeah. much for your call. You are pushing us down the road, asking the big questions <laughs> about energy. And uh, good luck with your uh, mining operations. You know, be safe down there, and uh, you know, keep the uh, keep the dust under control and provide energy in the next uh, decade or two, while Dr. Binderbauer. Changes the world. <laughs> or or it goes out of business. Or it goes out of business. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks both. for your call. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Science Rules will be right back. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. You're listening to Science Rules. So let me just get something straight. After we run this mm. nuclear, uh, this f fusion reactor mm -hmm. for a while, doctor, which in which I could stick my hand without hurting it, really? Yeah, this is, well, the, it, it was some of the temperatures we have right now in the environment we have right okay. now. And you a right. real reactor, it's right. going to be a little different. Then, uh, yeah, because it's hot enough to run, to make steam and run a power yeah. plant. All right. There's no radiation. Mm -hmm. What what are the problems with it? What are the downsides? What are the things that are going to go wrong that are like akin to analogous to the problems with fission? Frankly, none. I mean, seriously, <laughs> what you will have. No, look, the jokes aside, the most serious um, thing that could happen is 
basically an industrial scale accident, like you said earlier, a fire or something, but it's not the kind of explosive wildfire, you know, you may think like a refinery exploding. Like you had at Chernobyl, for example. Um, you would have, no, no, what you would have is, for instance, an industrial fire, you know, and fire department have to come out and put it out. Now, you know, you may lose some very expensive equipment in the process, mm -hmm. and so you got to rebuild it, but it's like anything burning down, mm -hmm. right? It's not, there's nothing special about it. Let me put it this way. If we had today a PB11-based fusion plant, I would have no problem having my kids play on the perimeter of that plant. Okay, so what you call it, PB11? Proton boron. Or Proton yeah, boron, boron with atomic mass of 11. Yeah. Five protons, six neutrons. Correct. PB11. So PB11. we call it. We in the biz. So, uh, this, God, this is just so much fun. Now, we have another call, Corey. Oh, this call comes to us from the air. We have Eagle Wu on the line. Cool. First of all, I love the name Eagle Wu. And I love that we have a caller from the air. Uh, Eagle Wu, are you there? Hey, how's it going? So are you, are you aboard a U.S. Air Force aircraft right now? <laughs> uh, well, Mr. Nanda might be classified, but... Uh, oh, okay. It uh, might be. No, I'm actually on a... I'm a <laughs> no, I'm, I'm actually just on a uh, flight to Dallas. But, um, yeah, um, we're started a VR startup, and uh, we'll actually... I'm, I flew to Dallas to uh, do some product testing uh, with some guys at Air Force bases in the Texas area. But, um, but what's your question? But Eagle, guess, what's your question? Yes. So I'm a undergraduate student at Babson College, and I'm really passionate about kind of pushing forward renewable energy. So as I mentioned at school, I started a company, and we're trying to start building simulations for the offshore wind industry. So as both a student and a startup founder, I was wondering – where do you see the most disruption potential for green energy? Also, what are your recommendations for students to make an impact on climate change? Well, of course, I would have started with start your own offshore wind turbine company, but you've already done that. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what did you say? That's amazing. <laughs> That's very wow. Cool. So, uh, as I say... I want to work all. I want to work uh, this problem every way we can. So offshore wind has tremendous potential. Is that why you're going to Texas, to like the Galveston area, something like that? Uh, no. So we're actually. So just to be clear, we, we didn't start an offshore wind company. We're we're helping offshore wind companies uh, train their workers in virtual reality. Um, oh. oh. This is how to maintain the turbine. You you learn to do the maintenance in a simulator. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Yep, installation. Anyway, I I believe, as I've said many times, we want to develop offshore wind. We want to develop solar. We want to develop distributed electricity uh, capturing or managing grids, and we want to invest in fusion, so that uh, in the coming years we're we have enough electricity to. Uh, to provide a high quality of life for everyone on Earth. So if you're part of a inherently renewable energy technology, I am all for it. What, uh, what would you recommend? Why did you, how about this? Why did you go into this uh, enabling offshore wind turbine main, uh, maintenance workers to be more efficient? Why did you get involved? Yeah, so I'm actually originally from Boston, um, and all along the eastern seaboard, a lot of states are kind of putting out a lot of lease areas for these offshore wind farms. Uh, so right now in the U.S., I think there's only like a few gigawatts of power being generated by offshore wind turbines off Rhode Island, but they're looking at expanding that to 28 gigawatts by 2024. I guess for reference, the total amount of power being generated in the entire country of the UK by offshore wind is only eight. So, like in four years, we're going to like 4x the amount of power that the UK has generated so all in offshore wind. Why did you want to get involved? Yeah, because we learned that that means they're going to have to train thousands of new people to maintain all these turbines. And we also learned, though, that a lot of these jobs are potentially fatal. So the consequence of that performance might actually be, you know, someone falling out of these turbines or getting injured. Okay. Hang on a second. Why, why is a wind turbine more dangerous? You're saying potentially fatal if you fall off a wind turbine or get smacked in the head with a spinning yeah. blade. That's about that. But is it inherently more dangerous than a crane, for example, or window washers? Um, I wouldn't 
say inherently more. The, the, the problem is these, these um, especially offshore wind turbines, these farms are very remote. So these teams are, are pretty much, uh, they have to rely on each other. And um, a lot of the technology is still relatively new. So if you actually climb into one of the turbines, um, you actually can see like how cramped the space is. And there's a lot of moving parts, so the, the risk of injury is, is there. Um, it's not necessarily saying that's the most dangerous uh, job, but it is, there, is, there is a big factor of danger. Involved. So you're trying to make the world a better place, yeah? <laughs> uh, yeah, hopefully. Uh, Michael. Yeah. Uh, he's talking about training workers on these wind turbines, which have a lot of gear trains. There's some lubricants. They're very high altitude. You know, people are uh, high off the deck, off the sea surface. People don't realize that modern wind turbines have a bigger span, blade tip to blade tip, than a huge airline. Yeah, like an A380 or something. Yeah, Yeah, than a 380 or 747 or 780, uh, 777. They're bigger than a 777. Uh, And so... Workers have to be trained to work in these, like, submarine-style cramped environments. What will the workers at your fusion power plant going to have to do? What special training will they need? Yeah, so that's a good question. You'll need um, uh, cryogenic knowledge, in in a sense. Handling really cold stuff. Cold stuff, yeah, the magnets, for for instance. Because you have super-cooled magnets. Super-cooled magnets, that's right. Uh, We also use it for other vacuum pump um, techniques. So, you know, you need it for that. Um, you will have to have training in other areas, though, uh, elect- you know, special electronics, electrical, um, power electrical um, equipment, those kinds of things. Like working, that always fascinated me. Guys who work on power lines, people who work on power lines, they get quite used to it. Yep. Like this thing would, if in cartoon fashion, make your bones light up. Sure. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. they're yeah. climbing around <laughs> on those things. So I guess you just got to be trained. That's right. Whether you're producing electricity from wind offshore or fusion, you got to have these fundamentals. You will. Then there's a famous picture uh, at CERN, the uh, the Center for uh, Nuclear Research in Switzerland, where there was a leak in the helium line, mm-hmm. the liquid helium, and the thing just exploded. The magnetic field is so powerful, it collapsed so quickly. How powerful and collapsing was it that it it just made the thing blow yeah, up. Yeah, we the, call the that the, uh, a quench, right? So a it's quench. over quench, quench localized. Such a, it's such a cute and calm word. It, it for, is, but you know what? I mean, the amount of energy itself. stored in these magnets is high, right? And so you have to, uh, the, the way w- what happens uh, with our in, in our space is basically with what's called quench protection. So the magnet is set up in a way where the detectors, so that if anywhere localized you get heat up, it will it will dump that. I mean, in, if you think about that, that's being practiced every day at every hospital that runs an MRI machine. Mm-hmm. Why do we still have Eagle here? I want to just kind of follow up back to the core of his question. So, Michael, if I gave you, let's say, a billion dollars, maybe I'm giving you $10 billion, and you can invest not in your own company, but you want to sort of – you want to do other things to disrupt the energy economy – as they say, to, to to make the world a better place, to foster better forms of energy, where would you put it besides your own company? Well, I think if you look at it, I mean, I never think of us as just being exclusive, like I said earlier. And so I think one of the areas where I would absolutely put my money is um, storage technology. Uh, and in fact, this is a bit self-serving. I can tell you a little bit about that too, but we are developing some technology in that space as well that's just serendipitous with what we need for our own experimental power supplies. But, um, but that's an area where if you think of wind and solar today, we have a big gap, right? We've got mm-hmm. the duck curve. We've got the diurnal changes, the seasonal mm-hmm. changes. Um, and so can we store enough energy out of these sources to then deploy it when the sun doesn't shine mm-hmm. and the wind doesn't blow? Uh, and that's an area where I think we're, we're going to be making brick strides technologically. And as those become commercial on the utility scale, they're going to be transformative. And that's going to expand the ability to have carbon-free today out of the renewable space. So I would definitely put my money into that. Why? My goodness. Uh, Eagle, you have taken us down a fantastic road because you're, you're talking about the technical details of keeping wind turbines working offshore, training people, which I believe is going to be the future, training people to work with the distributed electrical grid with new machinery uh, and new uh, substations new ways of doing more with less. Eagle, thank you very much for your call. Fly on. Now, <laughs> thank you. Corey, Corey, do you, 
Wait, do you hear that? Wait, that... Bill, lightning in the studio? Well, it's superheating the atmosphere, creating thunder. Michael, we're going to throw some quick questions at you, and we want to hear your quick answers. All right. Um, do you personally drive an electric car? No, I don't. Why not? I, I'm, a, I'm a performance geek, and, you know, they're just getting to the point where I think they're at the point where I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm on the list for okay. one of the new Porsches. How do you feel about nuclear reactors right now? Are you a fan? I think we, yeah, I absolutely believe, other than we said earlier, the cost, I, I do believe that they're a source of carbon free that we need to pursue. Solar energy, yes or no? Yes. Uh, wind energy, yes or no? Absolutely, yes. Odds that we will have a commercial fusion energy f- reactor f- working, flowing electricity by the year 2030. Commercial. I, commercial, not. Um, net energy out, yes. Net how about, energy how about, out. How about 2040? Commercial? 2040 commercial. 2040, uh, done. Uh, odds, 50-50? Uh, no, I would say it's the high favor. It will be there. Here we go. Dr. Binderbauer, how do you maintain your own energy? How do you keep it going? I mean, my personal energy? Yes. I think what it is, it's just a passion of what we're doing. You know, I, I look at my kids every day. I have a six and a nine-year-old, and I say, can we leave them a better world than the world we inherited, or at least it's good? Uh, and that's what drives me every day. It's a privilege to do what I do. Fantastic. That is fantastic. So thank you so much, Dr. Michael Binderbauer the chief executive of TAE Technologies, Tri-Alpha Energy Technologies, California-based company, and you are trying to create a new kind of energy using nuclear fusion, and dare I say it, change the world. I'm Bill Nye. I'm Corey S. Powell. And remember, when it comes to the nuclear fusion part of our universe, Science science rules. If you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show so that we can we can change the world. Thanks. Science Rules is produced by Jordan Bell. Our engineer today is Jared O'Connell. Mixing an original theme music by Casey Halford. And special thanks to Claire Rawlinson. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer of Stitcher, where science rules. Thanks for listening. Stitcher. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.